Hello and welcome to Turning Point Tactics, the competitive kill team 40k podcast, focused on giving you the strategies and tactics to seize initiative every turning point. I'm your host Ryan and I'm joined by the F-22 5th generation air dominant stealth fighter to my Chinese made £2.50 birthday balloon, Connor. How are you doing this evening, Connor? Uh, I'm, I'm good, thanks Ryan. You haven't popped my confidence just yet, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so last week we were hearing a lot of FAQs and questions centred around deployment. Should we discuss that today? Absolutely. I think that's probably a, a really good next sequence that we're going through for that match play mission sequence. And obviously, we're through to now deployment. And I think the first thing that we're going to do when we get to the point now, if you're not familiar with the new match play mission sequence, but it's going to be grouping your models, right? So you have to get into three individual groups. Now, this is something that I see quite a lot where people look across the table and they think, I don't really know what I'm doing here. I'm just putting them into random little groups and then I'm going to throw them on the table and, and see what happens. So hopefully, we'll cover a few tips and, and a few thoughts behind what you could do to maybe make your deployment process a little bit more fluid and make a bit more sense really so that, that's kind of what we're going for so let's start with um with grouping so the first thing i'm going to say is in the three groups that you have to make i like to put my first movers and they're usually going to be my objective players or they're going to be the guys that are doing safe movements in group number one right in group number two i'm going to have my like utility group and i'll come into more on that in a second and in my third group i'm going to have all the threats these are my my big damage dealers and usually the range threats or indirect weapons that are going to keep people back and keep them respectful so group number one your first movers these are going to be the guys that you you need to put in positions where you're not going to end up move blocking yourself right so and i'll come more about about that as well but what that means is you need to look at these guys and think who are the models that are going to be going into the midboard first who are going to be getting onto those objectives and need to have their movement uninterrupted or have sufficient movement that they can be placed somewhere where you can get to where you need to go with the movement you have available so effectively you need to pre-measure out what they're going to do that turn be that a move and a dash or, a, or just a move or if it's an action-based primary is it going to be like a six inch move and then an activate the objective or maybe it's going to be um we talked about using crude apl buffs in a previous um thing with the trophy in a previous episode so maybe it's going to be something like that so you go i need this guy to be able to move and dash and he's going to get to this objective use that trophy and, and claim that objective point for me so it's really important to make sure you have all those those objective players that are going up the board in one group the next group is going to be your utility models. That's probably going to be like your medic, your comms guy, potentially your leader giving out buffs or whatever it is, right? So these are the guys that are going to be supporting potentially those models that are going up the board or supporting your threat models that need to be placed subsequently. And then finally, you're going to have your threats. So this is going to be like your plasma gun. This is going to be your sniper, potentially. This could be your um, grenade launcher, whatever it is, right? Your, your long-range threats that your opponent needs to respect. Now, the, the benefit of, of doing them in your last group is A, you get to see what your opponent is is doing, and B, you get to do a bit, bit of threat matching, right? So we'll come on to more of those in detail as well as, as we go through the episode, but that, that's the first main bit. So first movers, group one, the people you want to be in the midboard. Group two, all your supporting units that are going to help those units get to where they need to be uh, at the right time with the right amount of APL that they need. And in group three, your heavy hitters, your threats, be that your melee threats or your long-range threats or your guys carrying your grenades and that kind of stuff, right? And those are the three main groups that I'm I'm looking at when I'm doing my uh, my positioning. Okay, so you've done your group split, and now you need to think, how am I going to get these guys on the board? And the first thing that you need to think about is the safety of your models. Now, hopefully, in your map design that you're using, you've got enough heavy cover to be able to safely deploy your models, or enough light cover protected by either visibility blocking or obscurity from vantage points so that you don't get swacked turn one with, with your models, right? So you need to have a really quick good look at, at what cover it is you're putting them into and whether or not it's safe to do that. 
you also need to have a good consideration about what sort of threats you're going up against. So if, for instance, you know you're playing against the new hands of the Archon, the Drakari, with a really, really scary, long-range, turn one, not needing visibility grenade throw that's, that's going to get your Torment grenade, well, might not be too much you can do about that, apart from maybe spreading out further. But is that going to put you in, in more of a threat to their Shredder, say? Who knows? So carefully balance those and think to yourself, okay, if I, if I go here, I'm safe from these kind of threats. And if I go here, I'm exposing myself to these kind of threats. And that's kind of the way to look at it. But the main point being is, you really want to stick to that heavy cover where possible and deploy your models. All right, so the first models you want to be deploying is going to be those first movers, okay? So you want to put those in the kind of locations that you think they can have a good route to the objective. Now, you need to consider what sort of special abilities you might have. So do you have the ability to bound over barricades? Do you have the ability to um, ignore climb penalties or that sort of stuff? But how 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 is your route looking to be able to get that model to where it needs to be to the objective? Additionally, if you have a specific tack op, maybe you need to start thinking about that as well. So maybe you're deploying a crew hound and you know that you're going to go for that recover item turn one. All right, well, where are you putting that recover item? Know that before you put your models on the table. Think about it and go, I think I'm going to be placing it here and therefore I'm going to put a crew hound at this location, this distance away, because I know it's going to be able to collect it turn one for me. So that's kind of like the, 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 the main thing that we think about is that, is that root movement, okay? And it's really important that when you're doing this, that you don't move block yourself so you want to put those guys on the edge of the heavy cover so not not in the middle like tucked tucked away where you're then going to put more models down either side of them and suddenly you're perfectly measured out you know six inches means you now have to spend two or three inches running around the back of one of your own models you don't want to be doing that right that that, that is where you start move blocking yourself so really have a good consideration of these this is the guy that's going to objective one this is the guy going to objective two and put them on the edge of the the terrain so they have the easiest movement to be able to get there and it's always always worth, worth to note as well, you don't have to completely put your base behind the terrain. You can put it so it's about 50% behind, right? So it's only costing you half an inch, say, to be able to move out slightly further right, or you get a bit more of your movement back, rather than, obviously you have to move in inches, but rather than having it so you're fully tucked away and it's costing you potentially two inches to be able to clear the edge of that, that cover, you really don't want to penalise yourself by doing that. So remember, if you've got like a 32 more base, make sure you leave a bit of an overhang, or even more of an overhang to be able to let those models move. Doing that as well is going to let you have more room behind those bits of heavy cover to potentially spread, spread your models out. So that's kind of like my, my my first bit with those those first movers. Do you have any thoughts on that bit, Connor? Uh, no, I think it's good so far. Let's keep going. Perfect. So next we're looking at our utility guys. So when I'm, when I'm looking at utility guys, what I'm thinking is, what buffs do I need to give to people and where does it need to happen, right? So... Is it a comms buff that you need to be handing out? Or is it going to be like a um, an APL modification potentially? Or is it going to be a, uh, a regeneration uh, ability that you need to have? Is it going to be your medic ability being able to revive people? Is it is it a movement buff that you need to be able to give to someone such as, you know, um, your penitent uh, and your uh, lady with the neural whips giving them a, a, a movement buff? Or is it like your blooded team being able to give your guy a stim injection to make their weapons relentless? Figure out where those specific utility models need to go and start placing them down next. Because that's really important to make sure that you have those, those buffs being paired with the right models in the right locations. Now, finally, when you get into your last sort of grouping, and you would have now seen your opponent deploy their models slowly and steadily, and you now know roughly how much of a threat you need to be able to hold back or deploy yourself early on, right? So when it comes to models with your long-range threats, the best way of deploying them, if you can, is invisibility blocking terrain 
behind a vantage point. That is the the golden sweet spot solution for um, for, for for models. So potentially on like octarius terrain, where the hatchway is, you'll see there's like a a gap in the transverse wall at the top, and you can jump someone up and you can get onto that vantage point, and then you can potentially drop back down if you need to with just a dash if you leave a bit of an overhang. Or you could burst out through the door and go forwards with a grenade model and that kind of thing, right? So where possible, you want that visibility blocking terrain to be able to maximize your chance of survival. Because if can't, someone can't draw visibility to you, most of the time, you're going to be safe from, from any sort of uh, evil return fire. If you can't do that, though, the next best thing is probably going to be using obscurity. But please, please, please double check with your opponent and make sure you don't get caught out by, say, a Sanctus Sniper just paying one AP and ignoring obscurity and popping your plasma gun on turn one. Make sure you don't get caught out by something like that. So you can use obscurity to protect your models against a lot of people though so keep your model two inches back from that heavy cover and note that you draw that from where it first touches the heavy cover line so if you're doing like chow nath or something like that that's going to be from where it first hits the the, the side of the wall that's closest to your opponent coming towards you so measure those, measure those two inches back from there make sure you guys safe and from all those angles and you can place them safely at the back and that can be your next way of having a threat and you really do want to have a few threats available, okay? So you want to have something that's going to keep your opponent honest as you go forwards. If you don't, if you have everyone on conceal, your opponent's just going to run at the board. They're not going to care because you're not going to be able to shoot back, right? Or you're going to really obviously telegraph the fact that you're taking the infiltrate option and your opponent might be able to play that against you to force you to take initiative turn one where you don't necessarily want to. So have the ability to have people on, on engage if possible. Keep them out of visibility or use obscurity or a combination of both uh, so that they are at the back nice and safe uh, but able to move forwards and get into dominating positions uh, to punish your opponent if they do try and uh, push up to you and finally what you want to be doing with those threat models is you want to start threat matching right and we'll talk about asymmetric play where we can in future but the broad broad idea of it in the most simplest way is you want your melee models to be fighting their shooting models in combat and you want your shooting models to be shooting their melee models before they get to combat right so that's the rough idea if you can try and match that so you can see where they, their, their threats are and you know that there's a route to get to them to be able to put pressure on the guys that you think you want to go and kill that's perfect this also applies to you know a, a few more niche abilities so let's say you have a the ability to hand out minus one apl well you might want to threat match that with a model that you know is only two apl but it's quite scary so let's say a nightmare hulk for instance so you want to make sure that your minus one APL model is able to see that Nightmare Hulk and apply that pressure. So match those threats and you want to make sure that wherever you can, you're, you're, you're doing that throughout. Okay, the next step I want to sort of talk about is a bit, bit more niche, but potentially qu quite important. And it's area denial or screening for forward deployment. Some teams will have the ability to forward deploy your own team and other teams will have the ability to, to forward deploy as well. Now, it might be that, well, almost all of the forward deploys that currently exist can't be within six inches of your own deployment zone. However, they're also usually a caveat of they can't be within range of, of models and a certain range of models as well. So what you can do with this is, let's say you're playing as um, commandos and you want to make sure that your opponent um, who is playing Pathfinders can't put their drone in a certain location or vice versa. You're playing Pathfinders and you want to make sure that they can't put their uh, command knob in a certain location. Well, if you deploy your drone first and you put it in the area of heavy cover that you think that they're going to go into, suddenly you've zoned out that area. And now they're going to have to take a slightly less favorable deployment area for their commando knob. 
and boom, straight away you force them to be playing further away from you. Maybe they're not in that dynamite threat range anymore, or maybe they're now in a less advantageous situation. So that's immediately something you can do that's going to help help you guys out uh, straight away. Finally, I'll say that some teams have the ability to um, do a little bit of baiting or, or have redeployment options. Okay, So when you're doing that threat matchup, make sure you're aware of what your opponent can do. Right, So don't don't just uh, immediately see that they put their sniper on gauge when they're playing Phobos and think to yourself, that's the person that I'm going to you know, commit to trying to kill. And you get yourself on an angle where you think that's definitely going to be the one. I'm here, I'm ready to do it, just to be caught out by a 1CP and they move away and suddenly you're not be able to, not be able to get that shot. Do you have any thoughts on, on that, Connor? Yeah, so I well, just want to expand on some stuff, really. So what I'm hearing is, is quite like a, a nice set of generic principles for deploying in kill team. It, d- does it change at all? Or is there any sort of differences when you're playing with an elite team versus, say, a horde team? So really, the key principles are all the same. But probably the amount of models you have are, are, are going to differ. So when it comes to how many threats you have, probably keeping one elite threat is fine. Whereas I would say, if you have a, a horde team, you probably want one or two, maybe even three if you can. And note that silent weapons are, are, are a valid threat, okay? So when you look at a Pathfinder player and he has two iron rifles hidden on engage, but out of visibility, and then two silent weapons as well, well that's that's four credible threats your opponent has to look at. And then if they have the, the switch order, that's five, right? So the number of models you have is, is obviously changing, but the, the philosophy should be exactly the same. The other thing you have to consider, though, is you're not going to have quite as much activation advantage as your opponent. So you are going to have to potentially move models up into that midboard and accept that you're going to have poor threat matching when your opponent can then move between them and and do a better job of, of getting the threat matching that they want. But that's just the life of Elite, unfortunately. You, see, you said threat matching again there, and I quite like it. So one of the things I think of when I'm when I'm playing elites versus, well, I'm playing legionary versus, say, your breach or something like that, I'll almost split the table up into lanes. I'll have, like, three lanes and go, you two here, you two here, you two here. And I'll deliberately balance out my blast just to make it really hard for you to try and defend against where any blast can be coming from. So I've got the frag grenade, I've got the saucer, I've got the missile launcher, and there's just angles everywhere. And your horde team is going to really struggle to find a safe place. That's such a good point. And like, I'm going to just hammer on that again because I think it's, it's, it's awesome. It's something you did to me really, really effectively when we were playing uh, Into the Dark with Legionary. And it was one of the things we were, we were experimenting with what we're going to do and then how, how we're going to make teams work in this sort of new world. And there was like three main attack lanes. And what you did is you put your missile launcher in one of them, you put your sorcerer in another one, and you put the guy with the frag grenade in the other one. And then suddenly... In each of those attack lanes, I have to constantly think about that threat of that blast, and I can't just ignore it or you know de- clump my models together because wherever it is, it's going to be a problem. And that also helps the threat saturate on the next turn. So let's say you know you, you move those three threats up the board, ready to then spring into action and attack someone. Well, I have to now try and mitigate against all three of those, and there's no way I can kill three models before you're going to activate. So you're going to get one of them go off and potentially be really devastating with, with what they do. So that's a really good point, and it doesn't just apply to Blast, though. It applies to your AP weapons if you have multiple, and it applies to your combat operatives if you have multiple ones of them. You really want to make sure that you're spreading those those capabilities out across the board. Now, that being said, obviously, all rules are there to be broken, right? So 
let's say that you see all the shooting models on enemy team is in one location and you think if I can get some melee guys in amongst that I'm going to do a really good job and and, and disrupt their plan because you found some, like, a certain way it's going to work then sure do that but what I would say is you know just be aware that if all their shooting guys are in one location where's all their melee guys is it worthwhile having someone there on the other side of the board that can counter charge or keep them respectful where they're not going to be able to just run their melee guys up don't you don't want to make it too asymmetric where suddenly they're now getting what they want on their side of the board as well so think about that think about how you're going to try and do it and uh, make sure that you have that um that threat matching it's really really important and there's like one last point that i'm going to just draw out because it's something that you mentioned in a previous episode when we were talking about how we learned um learning with pathfinders and i think it's really important to be able to learn about this with pathfinders as well but it's it applies to a few other teams as well right so if you're thinking you're going to potentially use a scouting phase dash or you think that you're going to use a a form of pre-game movement and loads of teams have that now they have the recon sweep they have the shush uh, shh with commandos you have the into the breach blah 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 there's loads of them right pre-game movement whatever you want to call it if you think you're going to use some of that then when you're deploying think about where you want models to be not where they are right now so we talked about it when we talked about board selection and we talked about it when we're talking about where barricades are going to go and all that sort of stuff but you need to stop looking just just at your deployment zone start bringing that field of view up and look at that midboard where do you need to get to what's within three inches so when i try and design maps i try and make sure that there is some sort of good terrain that's within three inches for you to be able to make advantage of one of those abilities so you know if you're going to do plunderers well where are you going to move to where's the heavy cover maybe you need to put a barricade there and you need to get get into a position where you can threaten people better by doing that Maybe that helps you solve your uh, move blocking problem with with a big team. I can spread my team out. I can get to these different areas. And suddenly my objective guys are now three inches further ahead. That's solved my APL problem. And I can push that APL onto my threats now. And then they can be shooting people instead. So I think that's a really like important thing to think about is think about where you're going to be, not where you are right now, right? So if you know you'll be moving forwards, put the barricades forwards. Put the, put the models in the open so they're within... A, you know a dash range of cover or heavy cover where it's going to be um, and that's kind of my my pain my main points on on deployment tips gonna anything you think's worth drawing out reattacking or any of that bits just just to expand on that point that you just made because i think being veterans we take a lot of things for granted some of the newer players the reason those models are safe from that three inch dash is because they're going to dash in the strategic phase and no shooting is going to happen until the firefight phase so it might look for a brief instance that they are vulnerable and in the open, but by the time your opponent gets to shoot, they will have moved to safety. Just want to clarify that for yeah, the new players. There's a there's not yet, or that I found, any ability to shoot before you're going to be able to get get your moves off. Um, maybe that will come in future, but hopefully not. But you should be able don't to give any ideas. Yeah, don't, let's not give them any any uh, big ideas to <laughs> to make my life any harder. But um, but yeah, so you can you, you can do that where you, you know they're going to be safe by the time your opponent gets their first activation, and that, I think that's a really important thing to look at. Um, there's a few other things that you know we, we sort of just touched on, but I'll just I'll just echo it again to make sure that people have, have captured it all. Use visibility blocking where possible for your support weapons. If you can't use obscurity, if you're using obscurity and you think your opponent, your model's at risk, make sure you stick your medic nearby if you can, um, or you know some other method so that they're not going to die too easily, uh, and make sure you don't move block yourself. Those are sort of the main points um, going going forward from there. Okay, Connor, if um, if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, you know, Ryan Connor, you're doing a great job. You're, you're putting out some some really useful tips. I really want to support you. Is there any way that they could potentially go about doing that? 
yeah so the simplest way for anyone to do that is just to hit that like button and press subscribe to get access to our our content if we can get to a thousand subscribers then that'll really help us um get the message out there and join people so share what you can also drop us a comment and let us know what you're enjoying what you're not or just talk to us about kill team in the comment section but if you really enjoy what you're listening to then you could subscribe to patreon for as little as three pounds or three dollars which would buy us a coffee but it would get you early access to all our videos as well as some exclusive patreon only content for you and and really is that's one of the things where it's like it, that gives us immediate support right now which is which is really awesome and for all the patrons that are already doing that you know we we, we cannot say thank you enough it, it, it means the world to us um and, and the point on the the 1,000 subscribers, just so people can understand that, that's the point in which uh, YouTube will begin to monetize our channel. So that's where by you just listening, you give us extra, you, you're giving us support and you're helping us uh, fund the podcast, upgrade our kit, and hopefully give you a better product over time just by just by listening. But to do that, we need to get those subscri- uh, subscribers and, and get to 1,000 before uh, YouTube will entertain it. So if you could, that'd be much appreciated. And thank you once again to all the people that are already uh, already supporting. Okay, I think it's probably a good time then, Connor, to roll into our tactical tip because uh, it is a Tuesday and it is Tactical Tuesday, as always. And it'd be good to 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 hear one of those. Do you have a tactical tip that we might want to talk about? Yeah, so we've been saying it for quite a long time now, and it ties in quite nicely with what you were saying earlier, actually. So our tactical tip of the day is activate your threat models last. So it's important to be able to keep your opponent honest and respect what you're what you could do not necessarily what you you have done but what you you might do so once you've rolled the dice and done something your opponent and you say you've you've whiffed then your opponent can do whatever they want and go and tap capture the objective move reposition get some aggressive angles on you but if you might be able to move up with your melter gun say or get your grenade launcher out there they have to at least acknowledge that there's a possibility and that it might go quite well. You might roll quite hot and do some damage. So activate the threat models last. Absolutely, and I think uh, we're going to build this on a, on a little bit more. But like the the main point there is, is that the the potential of the shot or the potential of the grenade, whatever it is, can be often a lot more scary than than the grenade itself. We've all got done it right. We've we've run a plasma gunner out and rolled four twos, and then you know, awkwardly dash them back to cover, having achieved nothing. Um, or we've thrown a crack grenade and done zero damage, whatever it is, right? But we've also seen the flip side of that, right? You've seen the silent medic sniper that's rolled uh, four sixes and done immediately 12 mortal wounds and taken down an incest sergeant without so much as a, as, you know, as a blink. So your opponent has to respect that you might roll hot or average, you know, you, 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 the options there. And it's going to make them have to think much, much more about their plays. And it's going to make them respect those threat ranges. So when we talk about activate your most dangerous weapons last, we're talking about indirect weapons. We're talking about high AP weapons, talking about blast weapons and that sort of stuff. So really, they're all going to be in your third group. But also, it could be potentially melee blocking models. One thing I I only just noticed it now, actually. So to recap, uh, you, you describe the deployment phase as one, you're doing your first movers. Second, you're putting your utility models down. Third, you're putting your threat models down. Is that the same way you're approaching your turns? Are you activating the the movers first, then the utility, and then the threat models? Is is that fair to say, or is there something else going on? No, that's that's pretty much exactly it, right? So, when I'm planning my my, my turnout, I'm 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 usually thinking, 
I want to do the safe moves first. There is an exception when it comes to loot or something like that, and we, we're playing more aggressive, but we'll come to that in an exception um, in, a, in, a, in a second. Um, but yes, I, I want to have my my safe moves that are moving out onto objectives that are going to not, not be shot at or anything like that. They're going to go first. I'm going to have my, you know, my utility moves moving around, and then I might do my comms buff towards the end, um, and then I'm going to do my threats. Now, I usually like to sequence it where if I know, let's say I have a significant activation advantage over my opponent. So my opponent's sat there and they're playing intercession and I'm playing silence, right? So I let them do their first six moves. And it might be that my first six moves are just moving up onto objectives and moving up my close range guys into positions where they can just chill out and do nothing. And then my last moves are going to be maybe my melter gunner, my plasma gunner, my comms and my sniper say, right? So maybe that's all I've got left. Um, now, if my opponent has given me some shots or the potential to do some shots well i'm going to take that right i'm going to i'm going to move guys into a position where they can shoot do damage and, and reliably hopefully remove some of those elite models from the from the table but let's say they haven't let's say they're all on conceal they're too far back you're playing quite a cautious player well by keeping that comms model till the end i can now go hmm okay i'm not going to get any shots turn one so what i'll do is i'll pass my gunners and I'll hand out those two comms buffs and I'll give it to my plasma gun and my melt gun and I'll put them in positions where I think they're going to be really useful to strike next turn. And at the start of turning point two, those guys are already comms buffed and they're ready to go. So I can then potentially activate my next comms guy and give it to my crack grenade dude and my grenade launcher or whoever else. And then suddenly I now have an entire turn where I've got four people with three APL to really apply the pressure to, against that elite team. So... Yes, sort of to summarise on your point, 100%. When I'm doing my turn, I'm thinking, firstly, I'm going to use my easy objective scoring models that are going to be, uh, play close to my deployment zone potentially in safe locations and safe moves. Maybe it's just guys that are just, you know, popping an objective and, and passing, something like that. Then I'm going to do my utility models, but probably not my comms. Or if I do my comms, he's going to be the last of my utility model, right? Because the longer you keep that APL buff, Again, it keeps people guessing, right? He's a real threat problem. Maybe you're going to give it to the guy with the grenade and he's going to uh, move, dash, and throw it. Or maybe you're going to give it to your plasma gun and he's going to move out, shoot someone, and dash back to cover. Um, that kind of thing. So I'm keeping that right away until the end. And then if I, if I need to, I'm going to spring it on that turn or I'm going to pop it for the next turn. And that's kind of the way I do it. And then finally, my threat models might be a melee guy, might be a shooter, whoever it is, some sort of way of keeping my opponent guessing. But generically in turn one, it's rare to see an opponent get that close to you that you can be charging them off for your deployment zone. But if there is that case and you're playing against a really aggressive player with a movement, maybe that's something to look at as well. What's quite cool about utility models is that they can actually buy you more threats. So we obviously discussed comms and that extra three inches they can get you to maybe get a new angle or a new shot off. But also I'm thinking your all specs guy, he can suddenly create an unobscured shot out of nowhere. Uh, marker light synergy coming up between pathfinders like marking someone out the creep bird like the utility guys can actually create threats out of models that weren't threats previously yeah and intercession for example i love to put the ore specs on the, the grenade launcher gunner because then i know that okay this guy is he's at the back he's safe he's on engage he's out of visibility but all of a sudden he can move out all specs and shoot and your opponent constantly has to be guessing where those angles are going to be. And they have to think to themselves, oh, you know, 
maybe he's going to come out over here, maybe he's going to come out over there, maybe he'll do this. And they have to constantly respect that if they put a, a huge group on, on central control, for instance, during a turn, well, maybe you're going to get the shot off and you're going to potentially hit four or five of them with a, with a frag grenade. And, and suddenly, you know, you've, you know, you might roll hot and you just kill an entire group. That, that could be really devastating. So they have to, they have to respect it. So activating those track models last is, is really important. And then there's like a, just a few last bits that I'm going to talk about this is, is the idea of playing for turn two. I see so many people going out the gate, aggressively playing, trying to win the game on turn one, right? And, and there's a chance it might work for you. You know, the alpha strikes on some teams are, are significant, but there's also quite a high chance it's not going to work for you. And if it doesn't, maybe you've overexposed and you've overcommitted. And I, and I made that mistake of Warhammer World, you know, just a couple of weeks ago where I overcommitted turn one and I heavily paid for it turn two and turn three. And so that's kind of a, the point. So play for turn two where you can. And you might be able to set up some double kill options. So let's say that you've noticed that potentially the incessor player that you're playing against has left one of their guys slightly too close to your melter gunner at the end of turning point one. And you think to yourself, okay, what I could do here is the last activation that I make is the melter gunner does a move dash and shoots that that. Uh, intercessor and then if I win initiative next turn I'm going to potentially be able to then move and shoot another intercessor or if I didn't kill him the first time kill him with the second shot that sort of um, option there is, is, is a like last first option so your last activation first activation and that could be a really good way of doing quite a bit of damage or getting double kills very very effectively so you don't have to do it but it's something to, to keep in your toolbox of well I have this option and I might be able to use it effectively to, to get that, that double whammy and uh, massively increase your, your efficiency. Cool. I think that was a pretty helpful uh, tip, Connor. And hopefully the guys will get, get something out of that. Obviously, we'll go into now our standard uh, part of the week where we're going to talk about um, some, some Meta Watch discussion. Do you have anything you want to bring out from the from the stats that we've been looking at? Well, we've been seeing quite a bit of discussion lately in like forums and chats around the internet regarding the um, the new deployment rules and the new fortify step. And in particular, I think people believe that it's creating an unfavorable or favorable advantage to t towards teams with a silent sniper. And so we've picked out some, some data looking at teams with silent snipers. And let's have a look. So we've got Pathfinders coming in at 46% win rate. Vetguard with a 51% win rate. Kazakin, 42. Commandos, 42. And uh, fast off a Kimbad, thirty-eight percent. What's your take on these thoughts going out, Ryan? Yeah, it's a really interesting conversation to be had. I think because uh, in our one of our main WhatsApp groups, the London WhatsApp group, we're having a chat about it today. Um, and obviously, the the g generic feel when you speak to most people is that potentially the scouting step was a was a bad change, right? Because um, they they find it oppressive or hard to deal with, and they're not too sure what they can do to, to get that sniper out of that, that cover and that position and that they're struggling to, to solve that problem. And then potentially it leads to what they feel as a, as like a negative play experience, having less fun because of it. Um, but what's really interesting is that if that was the case and, and it was becoming really dominant and it was helping people win games, you'd expect to see potentially more people winning with those teams. But we haven't actually seen that. You know, we, We've seen those, those teams, if anything, come down in win rate and now sort of like at the bottom of the pile rather than at the top, which is really odd because, you know, as you said, people are people are thinking it's, it's different. Now, I think there's a, there's a whole bunch of reasons behind why this could be. Um, but there's, there's a few other points I, I want to bring on it as well. So firstly, 
the teams that people describe as the the boogeymen of of the silent sniper meta who can sit on these these high um high buildings in this this barricade area and and dominate the map um, people usually talk about vet guard and they talk about pathfinders and and that's pretty much the teams that people talk about you know teams like corsairs don't usually come up teams like um your kentucky fried chicken kin band they don't usually come up right <laughs> um Kazakin, that sort of thing. Right? Everyone goes, oh, those teams are fine. Like that, it's not a problem with those teams, but it is a problem with this this pathfinder and the vet guard. But those two teams are the teams that actually don't need it, right? So, which, which sounds really odd because everyone thinks, yeah, but they, you can you can go there and you can do it. So you're obviously going to make make the most use of it. And it's like, well, the spotter can get someone out of heavy cover, and they don't even need a vantage point. So, like putting them on a vantage point, all it does is potentially give them a better field of view, but it doesn't it doesn't help them do their job. So they can still sit the spotter in heavy cover in low ground and they are just as hard to be able to eke out as they would be um, up on, on a vantage point. The only slight difference is they're slightly harder to charge or get into melee with. Um, but that's about it really. So that's that's still a possibility. So they get around it with their spotter and they can they can do that and their plasma gunner or their sniper can swing out and get a shot where you thought a model was safe. Pathfinders... They're going to supply loads of marker lights, and they can do exactly the same thing. So if they get these five marker lights, suddenly they're eking you out of light cover, and there's nothing you can do. Now, I guess there's an element of they're a bit more efficient because now they only need to get to say four marker lights to be able to get that sweet spot of ignoring obscurity whilst also ignoring your light cover. Um, but generically, they, they're going to they're going to do that with with five marker lights just as easily as they can with four if they really needed to. So against the models that they really care about killing. It's just one more extra mark light investment for them. So it's interesting to see that their win rates aren't quite as high as you thought they would be. But yet, obviously, everyone thought they would be really, really dominant. Now, there's a few reasons why I think this might be. Um, and it's it's worth sort of acknowledging where the game has been and where it's going, right? So for a long part of the game, when we were all talking about open board and we we're talking about how snipers affect the, the, the play and the meta, etc., etc., well, we weren't talking about ITD. And in ITD this isn't a factor and arguably pathfinder is a bit weaker in itd so we've maybe seen people with the you know the, the the rise of more into the dark tournaments stepping away from those that the, the pathfinder team and the vet guard team because of a perception that they're not they're not quite as good and therefore their win rates are, are going down because when they are being played in, in those environments maybe they're not quite as strong and, and therefore we're seeing a, a slightly lower win rate than, than we'd expect but again i I personally haven't yet seen um, a unsolvable problem when it comes to the sniper on the uh, the vantage. So, and I know that you can be really gamey with it. You can put a barricade in exactly the right position so that you can't charge someone, and you know there isn't enough space for a base to be able to get in, and you can't position someone within one inch and all that sort of stuff. I, I know that you can do that, and I get it. Um, but the, the point being is that I think it's quite a big investment, right? So. But we've got to a, to a point of balance now where people are taking fortify, and I think people are sort of like overlooking that that as as part of the game. Right, the scouting step was was pretty stale before. Like most competitive players, if you're honest with yourself, you're always taking infiltrate unless you really needed to force your opponent to have initiative, and then you were just taking the barricade for the hell of it, and you weren't doing it for the the benefits that barricade is going to give you. For instance. Um, and and same with dash right so everyone was 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 doing these things just because they they felt like they 
they should for, for for whatever reason, rather than getting real benefit out of that scouting step. Whereas now, every time I approach a table, I look at it and think to myself, oh, I could maybe have a barricade there. That would be really useful in that vantage point. Or, but I do want to have that infiltrate option available to me. But actually, dashing over here could be quite useful as well. And then it's it's given me a bit of choice. And then I know that if I'm looking across the table and thinking, ah, I think my opponent is definitely going to take the fortify step. Well, I can just take dash and I, I can make use of it here and I, and I can force them to have initiative and I can play around that that sniper position. So I, I think it's interesting to see that, you know, our, our perception initially can can be quite different to what we're seeing in the stats. Now, I appreciate lots of caveats to this. It's a very small data so, uh, data pool. We don't necessarily know the, the contract of the players that are playing them. Um, but, if they were OP broken and, you know, all the competitive players thought that it was a completely unsolvable problem, well, then I'd expect them to be playing them and I'd expect them to see more people be playing them and then to have a better win rate. So it's an interesting one. Do you have any, any thoughts contrary to that, Connor? No, Connor, I want to almost agree with you. I think there's a, there's a lot of obvious benefits to having cover and advantage point, a lot of pros. But there's a lot that it's costing you. There's some cons. And the two that I can think of is you've already discussed. It's costing you that infiltrate flip, which is very strong. We've just spent most of the episode talking about threats and keeping your opponent honest. And an infiltrate option allows any model to be a threat. And any model can keep your opponent honest, which is quite nice to have in the back pocket. And also, you can have a model up there absolutely slaying, killing the entire... and You can kill the entire enemy team. And you can still lose because you've not been playing the objective. It's, it's very easy to almost turn into a bunker, get bogged down, focused on killing everyone and forgetting that there's still a mission that you've got to play at the same time. So um, you've, got, you've got to analyse it, I think. I don't think it's broken yet. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. So, uh, there's, a, there's a really good uh, vet guard player that, um, that I, sort of, I was talking to in the, in, the, in, the, in the chat. And I was asking him his opinion on the security archetype and you know how, how he felt the scoring that was. And... As far as he's concerned, that vet guard post, you know, new mission and uh, new tac ops, it's it's a straight nerf to what they they're able to do and what they can do, right? So now they need to have more board control. They need to play more aggressively. They need to move up threat. The fact that there's six objectives means a faction tac up, the stand fast, requires more models and more investment to be able to max out. So actually, scoring points is is harder, and holding more models back on barricades is is denying you models for the midfield. Um, and so maybe that this, in a way, it's it's one of those like semi-balancing things where, sure, vet guard have been given one thing with one hand. Oh yeah, you can get a sniper up to there, and, and you can dash a guy up to there if you want to. But on the other hand, you've also lost on the the mission scoring front. So you're more offensive, but you're less mission play. And I think that you know, I think that's, that's, that's a good balance to be had, right? So it's like you don't you don't get everything all the time, and you have to kind of like evaluate as, as the meta shifts. And, and what we've seen, and it's interesting, is that you know the, the teams that are at the top of the meta right now, teams like Gellapox, you know, are they abusing this this new change? You know, I don't think they are. So why are they doing so well? You know, why are Harlequins doing so well? Like, are they are they abusing it as well? Or, or I don't know. Like, but it, it it's 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 hard to to see where people um are sort of like getting their or or, or how we're combining that like massively oppressive what feels bad into what we're seeing in the win rates and seeing in the tournament placements and that sort of stuff. Because I tell you what. Top of the table for, for win rates, or sorry, for, for tournament placings, is still intercession and, and, and legionary, right? So they're still the most played, they're still winning the most tournaments, but they're not abusing this at all. So why is it that it's it's causing such a, 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 a dilemma? I'm not too sure. 
But maybe it's something that we can talk about in a future episode is, is how do we solve that problem and, and how do we fix people? And we'll talk about the scouting episode next, I think, as one of our next episodes coming up. So that's probably a good thing to cover then. I think we've also given our two cents. We'd love to hear your two cents. Come let us know in the comment section. Tell us what have we overlooked, what have we missed, or do you agree with us? Drop us a comment and let us know. Yeah, it'd be a really good, really good point because obviously everything that I see is is, is from a, a different different perception, right? So I see it from, from, from my point of view and I see it from the games that I've played and, and that sort of stuff. And I and also, I know that I see it from the maps that I play as well, right? So I have deliberately tried to build maps where you can you can do these things, but it has some sort of cost to you, right? So it might be that, as we said, you, you can get up onto, the, onto that advantage, but then the, the objectives have heavy cover on. So if you want to get both your sniper and your spotter onto the the advantage to then use your heavy cover to be able, like you know to eat them out and all that sort of stuff. Well, it's going to cost you at least a turn to achieve that, um, and it's going to make it harder for you to do. So, like that's what my my perception is. But maybe you have a completely different perception, and maybe you can shed some light as, as to what's happening in your local meta, how you're adapting to it, what you've seen, all that sort of stuff as well. Because that'd be really interesting. Um, my sort of closing points on this is I think it's it's really quick for or easy for us to to, to say. Let's let's just remove something because we don't like the way it plays, um, and therefore we we don't want it to uh, to, to be in the game, or whatever. Um, but the point that I'm going to make is, Games Workshop when they're doing these balanced data slates, when they're changing the game, hopefully for the better each time, and they're updating the rules and all that sort of stuff. They're looking at the stats, they're looking at the at the feedback, and they're trying to understand which which teams are performing well or underperforming or overperforming, and which teams are potentially um, uh, you know need help or don't or need nerfs right so but they're they're doing that through stats if we all individually start playing different games so if you house rule custodies to be four apl um you know well maybe custodies start dominating in your local meta but in someone else's meta they're still struggling and then gw nerf them further because of one reason or another and it's suddenly become unplayable for someone else so you know it's, it's important to understand that we we try and all play the same rule set, I think, where we can, so that GW can get some really good data, and then hopefully make the balance changes that go along with that. And to their credit, and I think you know this is a sort of maybe a divisive thing because I know in the past they've not been the best, but I think at the moment they've been really good at, at receiving feedback, updating the meta, and, and achieving balance. I think if you speak to most people, um, they would say this is the most balanced game system that GW do. And it's probably the most balanced the game has been since release. So it feels to me like we're we are much, much closer than we've ever been before. And I think when we look at win rates, we have to be careful that we're we're not conflating it with just the only reason a team is really good is because they have damage mitigation, or the only t- reason a team is really good is because they have this particular scouting option, or whatever it is, and understand that so much has changed over the last few um balanced data sets. We have a whole new mission set. We have a whole new tack up set. We have a whole bunch of balance changes for individual factions. The top factions have come down, the weaker factions have come up, etc., etc. So I think we're getting really close to that nice little middle zone where, where, where we want to be. The game is is getting there. And I think the only way we can keep making those changes in the right way is going to be uh, all playing the same game, I think. That's such a good point. And you've completely you've changed my opinion. So last week I said... You know, I think it's a tournament, it's a game, play how you want to play, as long as everyone's having fun, who cares? But actually, that's such a good point. Like, if, if no one, they've, if Games Workshop have introduced a new change and no one's playing with that new change, it might be that the change is broken and needs fixing. But if they haven't got the data there to notice that it is broken, how are they going to know to fix it and it won't ever get fixed? That's such a good point. And 
and I do understand from a, from a tournament organized perspective, you know, if a, if a change comes out, let's say a week before or you know, hot, like three days before a tournament, do you want to necessarily play with it right there and then when all your most competitive yeah. players have, have learned for like a certain way of the game? And you know, is it going to completely throw their prep out the door by by doing that? I understand that argument, and, that, and I'm not saying that you, know, you have to do it without without thought. I'm just saying. I think it, you know, you have to take it with a bit of analysis and a bit of understanding of the, of the broader picture of where the game is, and think to yourself, okay, maybe this is really broken, right? So, if you're a competitive player and you think that vet guard are really broken and and that this needs to be fixed, well, well, play the team, you know, take them to tournaments, get the wins, get the data, you know, get get that that you know that 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 message out there by doing the wins, um, you know, if if if. Navy breaches are the strongest faction by a country mile. We'll come back with ten wins over ten games, and then you know, and say, "Look, I've just won every tournament I've, I've been to, um, and it wasn't because of me; it was because of the team." You need to nerf this team because we saw that with you know with custodies. We saw them dominating every single tournament team. We saw that the pathfinders; they're dominating all the tournaments because competitive players were like, "Well, I'm going to play the team that's going to give me the highest chance of winning." So you know, if it is the case, and you think that's the case, then, then I think go give them a play, go see how it goes. Um, and and maybe you'll 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 change your opinion on it, or maybe you'll realise that when you're playing the game that actually it's a bit harder to score tack ops with vet guard than I thought it was. And you know, actually, for, when getting those models on the table, I'm struggling a little bit. I don't know, but that, that's kind of my my thought. And I'd I'd love to see the behind the curtain on playtesting. You know, I think that'd be a really interesting world to observe because they've obviously probably been playing with this rule set and these new teams for for way way longer than we have. Um, so it's, it's hard to know all the thought process that's gone into it. Um, but but maybe we can if we can find one they'll talk about it um, get a play tester on the podcast at some point they're probably protected by some sort of NDA um, but you never know but it'd be really cool to be able to see what what, what they think about all this okay um, any any final points well, I think that sort of covers off the um, the mail watch discussion for, for this week no nothing for me brilliant. So that brings us to the end of the episode. Hopefully you found something new or useful while listening. Uh, if you did, throwing us a like would be greatly appreciated. And if you want to make sure that you don't miss any episodes, make sure to subscribe so you get notifications as soon as the next one drops. That really is the best way to help a small channel like ours. And if you can't wait and you want early access, we do have a Patreon where you can get exclusive access to all of our content as well as a few other bits all ahead of time. As always, we'd love to hear your uh, thoughts and feedback. So drop us a comment below and we'll get right to you. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Ryan. This has been Turning Point Tactics, and we'll see you next week. See you next week. <laughs>